Morning, church. Morning. My name is Kendrick, and I'm the, one of the pastors here at Calvary Church. We are going to continue our walk through the Gospel of John this morning. The last several weeks, we have been walking through Jesus' farewell discourse. Um, we finished that last week, and the farewell discourse is Jesus' last teaching with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And after the farewell discourse, Jesus turns from his disciples to the Father. And in chapter 17, which we're going to be looking at today, is Jesus' prayer to the Father. So if you go ahead and turn your, your Bibles to John chapter 17, or click in your app to John chapter 17, we go from one of Jesus' longest, or Jesus' longest teaching in Scripture, to Jesus' longest recorded prayer in Scripture. And we find that in John 17, which we're going to be looking at today. And it's this prayer that we see Jesus' heart before he goes to the cross. Jesus is fully aware of what is about to happen. And sometimes we think of him bearing our sins and carrying our sins to the cross. But Jesus knew that he was about to face the wrath of God. He was going to the cross. He was going to face the wrath of God for all the sins of the world for all of human history, past, present, and future. And in this passage, we get to see his heart at this moment. As Jesus prays in the shadow of Calvary, we learn what is on his heart. We learn what his deepest concern is. And as we'll go through today, we see that actually there's only one concern. And that concern should not surprise us. Jesus is concerned with one thing. And that's the glory of his Father. If we look at verse 1, it says that when Jesus had spoken these words, talking about the farewell discourse, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And it's this first sentence that summarizes the entire prayer that God would be glorified. The rest is just commentary about how God will be glorified, and that's kind of important because at the end, he tells us, he tells the church, the body of Christ, those today, he tells you how to glorify God. He gives you one of these ways that we can glorify God, and that's really, really important because our chief end as his creation is to glorify God in all that we do. And we see in Scripture, Jesus prays to his Father that we would glorify him, so we will get there. Let's begin reading the prayer As we start out, I'm going to read the entire prayer. Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give him eternal life to all whom you have given life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you have given them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. 
I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Dear Father, we are so um, grateful for this opportunity that we can see our Lord and Savior's heart before he goes to the cross, that we can see what his number one priority is, that we could see the focus of his heart all the way to the cross was your glory. And Lord, we pray that as we read this, our hearts would be stirred. We pray that as we read this, that his heart would become our heart and your glory would become our supreme mission in life. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your son's name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Church, we're gonna get started. This is, as you can imagine, a... um, theologically filled prayer. If you don't remember, or if you're new, about two years ago, we went through this same prayer in about six weeks. Right, right now we're gonna do it in about 25 minutes. So, here we go. I was talking with Melissa about it, and she said, you don't have a lot of illustrations. I don't have time for illustrations. Right? We, we're going to cover a lot of stuff, so let's just start through this. We already know that Jesus' supreme focus is that God be glorified. And as Jesus prayed this, Jesus prayed that God would be glorified through his work. Right? That God would be glorified through the work of Jesus. As we re- have read through the Gospel of John so far, there's been 13 times in this Gospel where he quotes Jesus as referencing this hour. Right, referencing the significant time in human history. He calls it this hour. And so what is this hour that Jesus keeps talking about? Well, we see that starting in, in the second chapter of John, at the start of his earthly ministry, Jesus is at a wedding. 
And you'll remember his mom comes to him and asks him to, turn, to, to create more wine. And Jesus says to her, they have no wine? And Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And at this time, Jesus is already beginning his earthly ministry, so we know that this hour is not his, the beginning of his earthly ministry. And just a, a short time later, Jesus says, as he's talking with some of the locals, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And he's talking about when those that are spiritually dead will hear Jesus' message and they will believe and they will receive the gift of faith. And so it's natural to think, oh, okay, that's what that hour is. But then in just a couple verses later in that same conversation, Jesus says, but do not marvel at this, for another hour is coming. Right? Don't, don't marvel at this. This is small. There's going to be something even greater than this that is coming. It's bigger and better hour. And for the next three years of Jesus' ministry, he repeats himself. He says, oh, the hour is not here. The hour hasn't come. Oh, hold on. The hour is coming. And he repeats this throughout his ministry. Then, right, just a few verses back from where we are now, for the first time, it's after Palm Sunday. It's early in the, the Passion Week. It's just before Jesus started his farewell discourse. Jesus looks at the disciples and says, the hour has come. Right? He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so now we are at that hour. This is the time. It's the, in, the hour that the entire world, that all of creation has been anticipating, that all of creation has been groaning for since Genesis chapter 3. Right? Since sin has entered the world, we are now at this hour. And God promised that he would send a rescuer to save humanity from sin. And guess what? The time has come. The hour is here. This is the hour when everything would change, when sinful creatures would once again be able to enjoy fellowship with their creator, when spiritual life defeats spiritual death. This is the hour that all creation groans for. This is the hour which Jesus' saving work is accomplished in the Savior's atoning death. And here we are sitting at that hour. The battle is over. As Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. And Jesus has won. His work is complete. In just a, a matter of hours after saying this prayer, Jesus will be arrested. He'll be beaten. He'll be hung on a cross to die. And there's a lot of things that he could have asked for as he was praying to his father. He could have asked for peace or strength or comfort. Maybe he takes a, a lesson from the, the, the sons of thunder and asks that God just rain down thunder on those that are about to do it. But no, 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 no. He asked for one thing. He asked that God be glorified. Right? That God's glory would be displayed through the work that Jesus is about to do on the cross. And this hour, it includes not only the, the coming work of the, being hung on the cross, but the resurrection by which the glory of the Father will be uniquely seen and uniquely secured forever and ever. It is in the cross that we see God's perfect justice. So many times we talk about our sins are just washed away, that they're as far as from the east to the west, that God has forgotten them. 
No, Jesus paid for your sins. Right? It cost our Savior his life, and we see God's justice on the cross. It is on the cross that we see God's compassionate mercy. We are not able to stand in front of the wrath of God. We are not able to bear the wrath of God. Jesus, in an act of mercy, went and faced the wrath of God for us. And it is through the cross that we see the fullness of God's grace. Right? His unmerited favor for us that he traded his righteousness for our sinfulness. That he gave us his righteousness and put our sins on the cross. It is on the resurrection uh, Sunday that we see the fullness of the Father's glory. That it was revealed when Jesus walks out of the grave victorious. That he is one. That our sins are forgiven. That we will one day be able to live in peace and harmony and in relationship with our Father. It is the very action which glorifies the Father and the Son that gives lost sinners like us, that gives us life. It is out of his love for the world that the the Father has sent his Son and that the Son has now laid down his life so that God's creation can be restored to right relationship with him. And one day we will be able to reflect his glory as his children, as we stand in his presence, as we stand in his courtyards, and as we sing in chorus with our brothers and sisters, holy, holy, holy is he, and his glory is reflected perfectly and magnified as it fills the earth. We see Jesus' prayer that God be glorified through his work on the cross, and we see that that answered prayer, right, that God answers that prayer on Sunday morning with the resurrection. God's glory was fully displayed at the completion of Jesus' work on the cross. And that was Jesus' first prayer. But as we continue, we can see that that statement, that God's glory was displayed, we can see that it is also applicable to the disciples. At the first disciples, the apostles, as they are sent into the world as witnesses, and as they accomplish the work that God had called them to, Jesus prayed that God would be glorified through the witness of the apostles. As Jesus begins praying for his his apostles, he spends a little bit of time making sure we know exactly who he's talking about. If you look at verses 6 through 9, we can read those and say he is talking about the apostles. He's talking about those who walked with Jesus. And it's clear that Jesus is praying for his apostles, not for the world, not for the rest of the world or the apostles to come, or the disciples to come, but he is praying for those who have been called by God, who have responded to Jesus in the flesh, those who witness Jesus' works and actions, those who have sat in Jesus' teaching, those whose witness is 100% trustworthy for others. And Jesus prayed for their protection. As they remain loyal to the truths that Jesus taught them, as they continue to be his witnesses through their teachings and through their lives, we see that Jesus' prayer for protection was answered and God was glorified throughout the book of Acts. And one of the examples is when Peter and John, they were were preaching the gospel of Jesus. They were preaching the resurrection to the people in Jerusalem. They were preaching it with such boldness that the Jerusalem council arrested them Right? He said, you can't proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. You have to stop that. 
But on the other hand, they couldn't punish them because there was people whose lives had been transformed by Jesus. There's people whose lives have been healed by Jesus. Standing right there in the crowd. Standing with them. So scripture tells us at the council that they, they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach in all the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, right, when the council had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. So as they're speaking the words of God, as they're being obedient to the teachings, God protected them. And then we see that Jesus prays for their unity in context of their witness. And we see that prayer is answered in Acts 2 and God is glorified and many are saved and many come to faith in Jesus and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship as they worshiped, as they studied, as they prayed, as they supported and lived life with one another. God was glorified and people came to faith in Christ. Jesus also prayed that, li- that their lives would be joy-filled as they lived as witnesses, as they lived out the basics of their faith. And I want you to listen to what John, one of those apostles, what he said in his letter. He's the author of this gospel, but he also wrote a letter about 30 years after hearing Jesus pray this prayer. And John challenges Christians to come back to the basics of Christian life to come back to the true doctrine, to come back to fellowship with God, fervent devotion, to be obedient and living, to be on mission with God, to be obedient to what Jesus is teaching and experience the joy that he and the other apostles have experienced. John wrote this in his scripture, uh, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He wrote this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, to get the full context of what John is writing, we have to put this into context. Remember, when John wrote this letter about the joy that is found in the disciples and the apostles, we already know that the Apostle James, he's already been martyred. He's already been killed for his faith. Church tradition says that about two or three other disciples have already been killed for their faith in Jesus at this time. Church history tells us that in about the next decade, three or four more disciples were going to be killed because of their faith in Jesus. And yet John is talking to us about that these guys who are constantly walking in the shadow of death have found joy by their relationship with the Father. Right, that their lives are fulfilled and God is glorified as they shared that joy with others in their witness. Right, that, that our joy may be complete. We're telling you these things. We want your joy to be fulfilled and you follow Jesus. 
And finally, Jesus prayed for the dedication to their mission. Right, the full commission of their mission, their full mission will come out later in Acts 1-8 when Jesus, just before he ascends, he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But we see an answer to Jesus' prayer in Acts 5. And I, I love reading this. I love this passage as we see that the disciples are once again, they're arrested. Right, we see Peter and some of the apostles, they're arrested for proclaiming the gospel. And they're not just put in prison. I love what scripture tells us. They're put in a public prison, right? For all to see, to be humiliated, to be shamed for speaking the gospel. And it says, at night an angel of the Lord opened the gates and brought them out. And guess where they were by morning time? Back in the temple preaching. Right? They had just been arrested. They go back into the temple. The council goes to pull them out of jail. They're not in jail. Somebody comes to the council and says, hey, they're not in jail. They're in the temple teaching again. So they go into the the temple and they bring them out. And they say, you have to stop. Stop teaching about this man, Jesus. And then Peter and the other apostles, they, they look at him. And it says, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Right, so the council brings him in, tells him to stop. In a very nice way, they say, no, like we're going to obey God, not you. And this led to them getting beat, right? Prisons were much different back then than they are today. The council wanted to kill them, right? There's plans saying, hey, let's just kill these guys. But then they were afraid that it would upset the people, so instead they just beat them really bad. And then listen to what Scripture tells us. Then they left the presence of the council, speaking of uh, Peter and the disciples, They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. That they remained dedicated. They remained faithful to their job. They remained faithful as witnesses. And then in Acts 6, right after this, it says the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And we see that through their dedication to their witness, to their dedication that God had given to completing their work, God was glorified. Right, through their witness, by accomplishing the work that they were given, Jesus' prayer was answered. And what was his prayer? That God would be glorified. That God would be glorified in his apostles. And we see that God's glory was seen in the completion of Jesus' work on the cross. We see that God was glorified. We see the completion of the work that the apostles were given to be witnesses. But this is where it gets real, church, as we continue to read. We see that we are given a task. We see that Jesus now shifts from praying for his work to be completed, right, to the apostles' work 
being completed. And then he changes it to the future church. All of the church. Here's what I pray for them. That they would complete this work. And Jesus prayed that God would be glorified through the unity of the church. Jesus prayed. Right, I want you to think about that for a minute. Right, we're talking about Jesus' work on the cross. Right? He's going to face death. There's like not a joyous time when Jesus is walking down carrying that cross. We talk about the disciples and the work that they have to accomplish being witnesses. All of them but one martyred for their faith. The other one's beaten for their faith and they celebrated. And Jesus says, and Lord, for the church, I just want them to be unified. That is my heart's desire that the world would see the church and their unity and be unified. See, this part of Jesus' prayer, and this, this hits home. Right? This moves deeply in our soul because Jesus is praying for us. Right? This brings this prayer into direct relationship with us. Verse 24, it reaches beyond the glory immediately disclosed in the cross to the revelation of the glory of Christ that is coming, and it comes to the second coming of Christ. It talks about the finishing of the work that the Father has given him to do is the presentation of all of those whom the Father has given him from all of the ages, from all over the world, all of us that will be gathered before his throne one day. And this is what Jesus is praying for now. This part of the prayer is for all those who will believe in me through their word. And their word, he's talking about the apostles' witness. Right? It's the testimony of his apostles that's contained in the, the gospel and the epistles. It's the, the scriptures that we read. All true believers know the same Jesus because we have heard, we have read the apostles' witness which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we know it to be true. Right? We have the same God. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the Word incarnate. This is the Word of God. There can't be mixture of air. And when we talk about God, we are talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know that Jesus is the Scripture manifested. We love Jesus. We love the scripture. We hold it dear. There are sometimes for people, and I fall into this category that holds scripture as the ultimate authority. This is the way of life. This is where we go. There's a derogatory term called, oh, you're a person of the book. Yep, you're right. Right? That is not a derogatory term. I am not offended by that in any way. I, uh, I am prideful when somebody says, you stick to the Bible too much. Right? As this, as Jesus being the word manifested, this is something that we should hold in the highest authority. This is something that we should look to and study and the words that it says we should try to obey. Right? Jesus is the cornerstone, the, the truth of Scripture, something we hold dear, it's sacred, and as we live by them as a church, when we say the Scripture is the ultimate authority, the, the inerrancy of Scripture is something we hold dear as a, a church, if we are living by those truths, we should be united by those truths, right? There's nothing else that is greater than that. And as we seek to pursue God and as we seek in our way as a 
church, the scriptures, and as we seek Jesus, guess what happens the more we understand Jesus? The more we come together, right? The more we are united as his disciples, we are to continue the work of the apostles and be a witness to the world, right? To abandon the truths and scripture is to abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we, we don't do that. We hold the scriptures and we move towards them and we continue the witness that the apostles were given. The church has now taken that mission to show Jesus to the world, to reveal God's glory. Right? The challenge of this prayer is inescapable. Jesus petitions his Father for a unity within the church. Right? Jesus asks his Father, give the church this unity that manifests his glory that shows God to the watching world. Jesus prays for this, and as a united church, as we live and as we teach the the gospel, it will draw the world to believe that Jesus is God's Son who redeemed the world. If we preach the truth and if we live the truth. Jesus' prayer indirectly recognizes the, the disunity that is naturally found in human hearts. Our fallen instincts that encourage us to make us the center of our world. To make us think that the world revolves around us. To make our wants and our desires the focus of our hearts. That it's all about us. But Jesus exposes that self-centeredness mindset in this prayer. Right? It's our union with Christ that brings a unity in Christ. Right? As we are unified with Christ, it transcends all of our individual preferences. Right? In Scripture, we've got to die to ourselves. We gotta love others as ourselves. All of our selfish selfish interests, all of our secondary disagreements that fall outside the parameters of the gospel. Right? Believe it or not, church, you can still disagree with people about just about anything except for a few truths of the gospel and still be fellow brothers and sisters and Christians. Right? We don't have to split that church. You could still be friends with people who disagree with you. You won't find that on Facebook, but I'm telling you, it is 100% possible that you could be friends with people you disagree with. Jesus prays that future believers would share in his glory by submitting themselves, right, by humbling themselves to sacrificial service to one another that would reveal God's God's glory to a watching world. The, The world doesn't know what to do when they see that. I remember I was on a mission trip, and there was a guy that was not a Christian, but he had to come with us because he was an engineer, and we were doing some stuff in the, the floodplains out in, in the Nile River, and we're building this house. And every single night, he said, what do you get out of this? Nothing. I get to share the gospel of Jesus with people. And he's like, oh, okay, and then he would eat dinner. Next night, we'd be sitting there. What's your return on investment? How much money are you making out of this? Nothing. As a matter of fact, we signed a contract saying no money's going to leave this tribe. All the money this farm makes is going to go back into this tribe. And he's like, okay. Guess what happened the next night? He went to somebody else. Hey, man, that guy's lying to me. What are you getting out of this? Right? You've got to be getting something. The world doesn't know what to do. Right? When we serve other people. And just as the true glory of God was revealed in the life of Jesus as he walked the path of lowly service that ended in the cross. 
Right? We are to walk in true glory and we are to walk a path of lowly service wherever it may lead. We are to just follow Jesus. And unity in Christ is promoted by humble service to one another. Philippians 2 describes the glorious attitude that Christ commands of his followers. In Philippians it says this. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. An attitude of humility, an attitude of service. Right? Christ's prayer for his church is unity. Unity in truth and the teachings, unity within the church, a unity between brothers and sisters in Christ, a unity that is spiritual, that is promoted by our walk with God as we seek the heights of spiritual maturity, as we seek to be like Jesus, as we grow in the sanctification process. And that unity is demonstrated through our humble service to one another. And if you've tried this, you know that this unity does not happen automatically. It doesn't come easily. It must be worked out again and again and again and again. Right? When a man and a woman, when they become one in Christ in marriage, there must be some commitment to oneness in that marriage. Not just on that day, but on every day of that marriage for those two to become one. Right? It takes a commitment to communicate. It takes a commitment to share their souls, to spend time together, to serve one another, to be vulnerable to one another, to submit to one another, to respect one another, to be intentional about growing in unity. It takes time and effort. I'm going to tell you, I love my wife, and she's like super easy to be married to. But there are times when we say, hey, communication's off. Stop. Kids. I don't care what you do, we're going to go for a walk because we've got to figure out this part. Right? We've got to fix this communication. We've got to work on being one. I know that we are growing in that because you know how many times the kids will ask me something and not like my answer and go to my wife or vice versa? It's happening less and less. And I like to think it's because we're growing in oneness. It might just be because I get in a lot of trouble, but I'm going to go with we're growing in oneness. But such this relationship, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It is a great relationship to, be, uh, to, to experience, to be involved with. If you remember when we were talking about marriage, Dr. Garland came and he, was a mar- or he is a marriage counselor. He does a lot of marriage counseling. He said the key to a great marriage, do you remember what he said? It's to outdo one another in showing honor. Right? If your marriage is just trying to lift that person up, if your marriage is trying to, to exalt that person, if your marriage is saying, like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show them more honor than they show me. He said, that makes for the great marriage. That's the secret. But many people never attain this union in marriage, not because they don't want it, but because they're not committed to working towards unity. Right? They, 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 marriage is not 50-50. That's not a commitment. Right? It's not, I'm only going to do for you what you do for me. No, it's I'm going to do more than you. Right? That's a limited investment when we're talking about 50-50. I'm going to give a little bit and see what happens, see if it's worth my time and effort. That's not how we outdo one another in showing honor. And the same is true for there to be unity in the church. 
Right? We must be committed to the unity of the church, committed to faith, and committed to humbly serving one another in the church, outdoing one another in the church and showing honor. Man, what would that say to the world behind us if every time you came to church, there's a whole bunch of people and they're just trying to outdo one another and showing honor? Right? They're trying to outdo. You'd never get in that door. You go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. Right? That we're caring for other people. That's what brings glory to God. I love what Bruce Mline wrote about this passage. He wrote this in a, in a commentary. Listen to this. And this is to the church. It says, the preacher is only the spokesperson of the community. The gospel proclaimed from the pulpit is either confirmed and hence immeasurably enhanced, or it is contradicted and hence immeasurably weakened by the quality of the relationships in the pews. In this sense, every Christian is a witness. Every time we gather together, we either strengthen or weaken the evangelistic appeal of our church by the quality of our relationships with our fellow church members. You want to be on the evangelism team, just start being nice to the person sitting next to you. Right? Maybe hang out with them. Maybe take them to dinner. Maybe get to know them. Maybe do life with them. But I, I also have to be honest. I love being part of, of a church. And as the pastor, I get to see this so much more than you. But we have people here that are humbly serving this church body at every chance they get. We have Linda Seeker. She saw an opportunity to serve our families with preschoolers. She had led a small group for years, and she said, oh, no, 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 I want to serve families with preschoolers. She gave up her small group so she could serve families with preschoolers, so she could serve others. We have Patty Eddie, who serves families and ministers to the church. Anytime there's an event with food, she is here working in the kitchen, literally serving our community, serving our church family. She serves in everything from celebrations of life to joy summer parties. You'll find Patty in the kitchen serving the church. Rick Reeve, he's put in countless, I don't even know how many hours, meeting with contractors to replace leaky roofs, repair an aging parking lot, fix electrical issues to serve you guys. He comes in here, he meets with guys, and it's a good thing he does because I have no idea what they're talking about. Right? When I meet with them, nothing gets done. When Rick would, meets with them, miracles happen. Right? He does that to serve the church. Tito serves members of this church family by walking them to and from church just a few doors down. Sometimes making multiple trips to make sure that every person of this church family that wants to worship with us is here. Eric, Eric serves our church by tasting coffee every morning. Right? I've actually seen him throw coffee out, and that hurts my heart. But he said, no, nah, it wasn't good enough. Well, just put it in my office. I'll drink it. We don't waste coffee. But he tastes it to make sure that the coffee he is serving to the church family is drinkable. Don't put a whole bunch of coffee in my office. Parents, right? How awesome is it, awesome is it to know that every Sunday you can bring your kids and there's going to be somebody in there to teach your kids the word of God. Countless volunteers. And then there's many people that are serving you that have to get here early at 9 o'clock. And we know that Sandy is going to be in there teaching the kids. We know that Lisa is going to be there at 9 o'clock to serve this church body so that you can prepare for your ministry, so you can lead a small group, so you can set up to serve others. We just have a church that is piling on top of each other, serving each other, outdoing one another, and showing honor. And it is great to be a part of a church family that has fellowship. 
Jesus prayed for our unity. And that's actually the work that he has given to the church today is that you be unified. It's what he prayed for as he headed to the cross. That is, Jesus headed to the cross. His heart was that God would be glorified and that you as a church would be unified, giving God the glory. Church, we all know it's going to happen. There's going to be one day that we're standing before our creator. Right? So often we always talk about, what, oh man, I just want to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Have you ever thought about what you would say? Have you ever thought about standing before God and the words that you would say? And as your pastor and as this church, I pray you'd be able to say the same words that Jesus prayed as he was headed to the cross. I glorified you on earth, having accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. I glorified you on earth. And the work that he has given us to do is to glorify him by being united with each other. Can you say, I glorified you, that I've accomplished the work that you've given me to do? Dear Heavenly Father, we are are humbled that you would even hear our prayers. We're humbled that you would listen to us, Lord, and we would just pray this prayer, that you would be glorified, that you'd be glorified in our life, that you'd be glorified in our actions, that you would be glorified in the unity of not just this local body of believers, but by the church. Lord, right now, the church is just, it's a mess. We're seeing people split, we're seeing churches break up, we're seeing communities and local bodies of believers just in distraught and they're splitting over different things, Lord, and we would just pray for their unity. We would pray that the Holy Spirit would come and that they would remember the truths that unite them and that they would remain united for your glory and that you would be glorified in the things that we do. Lord, we just pray more than anything else that you be glorified. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your son's precious and holy and unifying name of Jesus that we ask these things. Amen. Church, we're, we're gonna sing a song again. It's one that we have sang and there's a bridge, I think is what it's called. I don't know how songs work and they talk about let the church live loud. Let the church live loud. That people, right, and as you sing this, you just think that our unity would shout God's glory. I don't even, I'm not even talking about the ends of the earth right now. I'm talking about to like the end of Shoop. Maybe up to Roscoe Road. And that this community would see God's glory in your unity.